Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. And in today's episode, we're going to remind you, in this game, everyone needs a break to refuel, recharge, and jump back in full throttle. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we're going to be going into a little bit more detail on something that we briefly touched on in last week's episode. Last week we were talking about non-combat encounters, and today we're going to be talking specifically about downtime activities. The things that you do in between adventures. This really is probably one of the more overlooked aspects of the game. Unless it's like your day-to-day, hey, you stop into a village for a day and you're doing whatever. Downtime activities really get skimmed over by most games I've seen and played. It's not uncommon to be at a table and they say, okay, you get to town, you've got a little bit of time, Two weeks pass, okay, now we're picking up on the next adventure. But this gives you a chance to do something in that two weeks. And it gives you an opportunity to build out your character a little bit more, whether it is material for your character, so gear or magic items or some sort of acquisition. It could be training. It could be just social interaction between your character and an NPC or between your character and another character in the party. Downtime activity is a low stakes opportunity for you to have social interactions with your party and a way to build intra-party relationships to cement that connection between you and your party members so that as you progress as a party and you get into more and more hazardous situations, that you have that strong connection that is going to bind you together and make it to where you are going to risk yourself to save your comrades. You're more likely to risk your life to save a friend than you are to save a stranger. I'm going to save Berselhoff the halfling before I save Bob, the NPC I just met two minutes ago. That being said, the downtime really is the point where you get to role play. And strangely enough, D&D is a role playing game. So it really should be a bigger part of the game than it tends to be. Again, like I said, this is one of those aspects that really does kind of get brushed over. You know, whenever you think of D&D, you do think about throwing dice at the table and all of that. And that is part of it. But that role playing aspect, as we've said many times before in previous podcasts, is literally the heart of the game right you've got your three pillars of play you've got combat you've got exploration and you've got your social role play you Uh, forgot mountain dew and cheetos that's the scaffolding holding up everything while we renovate but downtime activities are the core of where your social role play interactions come in There's a lot that can be done and actually researching for this episode, I actually saw a lot more opportunity to bring into the game too, which I'm actually really excited to explore in the future. Okay, so getting into the actual topic for today. Personally, I like to break down downtime activities into one of two categories. The first is getting something and the second is doing something. Getting something should involve there being an item or an object or a pile of money at the end of it. Doing something is whatever your less tangible things are. It's doing things for the fun of it. It's doing things for a purpose that is not material. And it's very crude and very broad strokes of classification. But those are your two main classifications. You're either getting something or you're doing something. 
So getting into getting something. This is your shopping sessions. So buying or procuring items is a big part of D&D because this is how you upgrade your kit. This is how you get new fun tchotchkes to play with at the table. New and fun and interesting ways to work the mechanics and combat, those sorts of things. If you have a DM who makes you track ammunition, this is where you get your ammunition so you can actually keep fighting. If you like loot tables, this is why your loot table matters. What does it matter if you get 10,000 gold pieces if you just, yay, I've got 10,000 gold pieces and I'm just going to stack them over over here and that's all they're ever going to do. There's no point to that. This is where you can do your shopping, you do your bartering, you do your buying. The other thing you can get is information and intel. And that's where you're getting something and you're doing something. Things tend to really start tying together. Right. That is one of those sort of a melding because you can end up getting material from that. But typically that's going to be more getting information that would for me fall under the doing something category personally we're going to talk a bit more about that later on but this would be you want to go and get a certain magic item so this is where you can use the rules that we came up with a couple weeks ago from magic items and go and commission a magic item to get started or you find out about an auction that's going on where they're selling off high value magic items and you know you have to have 10,000 gold to even get in the door these are the sorts of things that you can get into for downtime activities right and this is also for a dm if your party has gone completely sideways during their combat encounters or while they're on the road this is a great time to throw another story hook back in to kind of pull them back on track or maybe if you had that great idea in between sessions, this is a good way to kind of slip that in and kind of introduce it. Or if you happen to come to the realization that the story that you wanted to run is not the story that your players want to play, this is where you introduce your new plot hooks. Exactly. So again, the downtime can be great for the players, but they can be a lifesaver for the DM. Yeah, they really can, because you can usually go into your downtime without a whole lot prepared and you can leave it player driven so the player tells you what they want to do and you just tell them whether or not they're successful at doing it you could make it to where in order to have certain ranks of magic items certain hazard classes if you will of magic items you have to have a permit And so you can make this whole big 30 minute long spiel where the party has to go through all of the paperwork and the bureaucratic red tape to get permits for their weapons. Because now they have more powerful weapons than what people who don't have permits are allowed to have. It's kind of like where there are certain people who have special permits and have to go through special training to be civilians who possess military grade weapons gunsmiths and certain dealers and whatnot are able to have military-grade munitions and they will subcontract to the Department of Defense, but they have to have this permit in order to do that. And so this would be the same sort of deal, is you have a magic item that is too powerful to have without a permit, so you have to go through the paperwork to get the permit, and by doing that, then you open up 
a whole new classification of work because now you have a permit. So now you can take these bigger government contracts, essentially. This gives me a wonderful idea for like an all night session where you stand in line at the DMV. That is a terrible idea. Do not run that game. But you get to the line and you realize you've got the wrong paperwork. So they send you back to the line. But in order to go back to the line, you have to get the right paperwork from the other lady that's on the other end of the hall. So you have to stand in that line, too. <laughs> this is going to be a great game. So a little bit of a sidetrack. This is actually a game that I have run, not in Dungeons and Dragons. This is a game that I have run in Paranoia. Because in the game Paranoia, you actually have a huge bureaucratic quagmire that you have to work around to get any gear at all. And so I actually did have a game session where my party ran for four hours just running around getting into all sorts of trouble just trying to get their paperwork straightened out so they could get their equipment to go on the mission that they were assigned and again honestly in your downtime if you're grasping at straws for what to do because you completely forgot to plan a session you really could do something like this for a filler session with a bit of imagination and (laughs) reference you know our earlier podcast on how to make some interesting npcs and you could have a fairly memorable session that's not something that people are going to deal with every day and i would also like to point out that this paranoia game was my second or third session of my first time ever running a tabletop game ever and at the end of that session my players hated me and they absolutely hated the session because it was so boring i just want to put that out there because it's easy to do it wrong and i didn't know any better at the time well like i said this is something for probably some of your imaginative dms but again it could be if you want to try something that's not every day then there you go i mean that's something you can throw a nice little curveball to your party and i will also point out that my party never bothered trying to bribe the person to speed up the process they always willingly stood in line even though there are skills in paranoia specifically called bootlicking, there's a charisma-based skill that was specifically for sucking up to your superiors to get what you want. This also brings in another thing. When I played the original Fallouts, Fallout 1 and 2, they were a turn-based PC game. And I was having a really hard time. I had another friend that played the game too. And the best piece of advice he gave me, which applies to tabletop games too for your role play, is your world-world ethics do not apply to the game. So if you're playing a thief in a game or you're, you know, on a wasteland or you're playing a backwater or if you've rolled skills for bootlicking, use those skills. You don't have to be an upstanding gold star character in your game unless that's the person you're playing. So again, don't be afraid to kind of stretch and play some different roles sometime. Getting back on track a little bit, another thing for your getting something could involve you have these magic items that your party can't use or doesn't want to use or they have something better and you come into town with them and now you have to find somebody to buy them because you're not necessarily going to be able to just walk into any shop plunk down this plus two longsword that you pulled out of this treasure hoard and say here I want 2,000 gold for this and expect to actually get it. That's something that, especially once you get into the higher quality magic items, most of your merchants aren't going to just have that kind of coin laying around. You have to find somebody who has the capital and the desire to buy it from you. 
Absolutely. And if you have a rogue in your group or something along those lines, this is a great time where you want to throw in your Thieves Guild or maybe a fence because your party comes in, you know, fresh from their victory and they've got cinched clothing and their shields are half melted and their tabards are all ripped. And like I said, their hair's been melted and their eyebrows are gone and they plop down this shiny magical sword. There's no way that sword's not hot. You know, it's like, oh, great. Stolen goods i'm gonna buy this from you absolutely not no that's not gonna happen i mean it could actually literally be hot by your description there yeah i mean it could still be warm from the dragon breath and again that's a way so i mean really this downtime it's the player's imagination goes a long way but the dm's imagination goes an extremely long way even your basic stuff for your ritual spells you can sit there and okay i can cast identify as a ritual spell but as a dm you can add flavor. What do they actually have to do for that ritual? What do they have to prepare? Does the room have to be dark? Does it have to be candles? Do they have to stand on their head and mutter, you know, a tongue twister five times? As the DM, you can create all these different things. And these are great ideas to kind of come up and play with and twist. Or if you just want to save time, then yeah, you took your 10 minute ritual or your one hour ritual or whatever it is. So going back to the crafting magic items episode and the rules that we've posted, crafting a magic item or even crafting a mundane item, that's something that you can do as a downtime activity, especially if you happen to have a stronghold or a base of operations where you can set up a workshop to where you can go in when you happen to be in town, sit down, work on whatever your project is. And then you can just leave it there if you have to up and go and go on an adventure. And when you come back, you can just pick up where you left off. Now, with the buying of magical items or things like that, Xanathar's actually has, and this was something new I discovered while researching this, has some tables that can be really fun. So you can buy your magical items, but they also have a table if you want to roll for complications. That could be that maybe your salesman's a fraud or snake oil salesman. Maybe the item's been cursed for some way. Maybe the item that you bought's been stolen and people are looking for it. So, I mean, even something as simple as, you know, I'm going to go and buy plus one axe can lead to all kinds of different stuff. That can be a lot of fun. And again, there's so many options to really toy with in your downtime. I actually had an NPC one time. He was a kobold who ran a secondhand magic item shop. And it's kind of a pawn shop sort of deal where if you came in and bought it, he would demonstrate for you that it worked. If it was something that was something that you can demonstrate works and it still work after you're done. So all the consumable stuff was an as-is purchase. But anything that could be used, he would gladly demonstrate that you could use it and it worked just fine. But he had a zero return policy. Once you walk out the door with it, it's yours and you're stuck with it. And you had to really hope that what you walked out the door with was actually what was advertised and that there wasn't anything hinky about it and that everything continued to work the way it was supposed to. And there was a good chance that it was just a regular mundane magic item and it would work just the way it was supposed to. And then you ended up getting it for half price because it came from this secondhand shop. But there was this chance that something could go horribly wrong with it. And so that was the gamble that you had to take. That really reminds me of the scene from Fifth Element where Zorg is selling the uh, weapons crates to the, uh, forget the aliens name. Yeah. But, you know, and a dyed-in-the-wool killer will always ask about the little red button on the back of the gun. And the one last thing in the getting something category that I really wanted to touch on would be repairing broken items or identifying unidentified items. 
So this is where you can reliably sit down with your pile of magic items and ritual cast identify on all of them. You have 30 items, so you just sit down for five hours and (laughs) cast identify until your eyes cross. You can run up and click on the Book of Cain for all of our Diablo players. Are we going to cover the uh, Stronghold? Uh, Yeah, we can. Okay. I like that as a concept. I had touched on it just a little bit ago, but yeah, one of the things that you can do in your downtime, something that takes a long time to establish is you can set up a stronghold or a base of operations. So you can have a place you know you can always go home to. Yeah, it's that point where you have that safe house. And I believe it's the Dungeon Master Guide has different costs and stuff. So as you start building the stronghold or your safe house, depending on what you want there, you start developing costs for maintaining this. There's an old meme that's been floating around Facebook and Imager and different things like that. But this is a good way to do that where you get your treasures and you put it up. And after you hit a certain point of treasures, you start having thieves trying to break in and steal your treasure. So you have to build more elaborate traps and guards and sentry to protect your treasure and your stronghold. And towards the end of it, you realize that, in fact, your stronghold is the dungeon and you are the dragon. So, I mean, that can be a fun way, again, depending on your party or what you want to do as a DM. That's actually a really good way to kind of take that story and work with it. And that defending your treasure from would-be thieves and explorers could also be your downtime activity from when you're collecting items. Now your downtime is defending your collection. It could be, but talking into your recurring costs... Once you have a stronghold, you can hire NPC followers to act as guards for your stronghold. So you can actually have retainers that their entire job is to stay in your stronghold and hold down the fort when you're not there. But another wonderful thing that you can do with a stronghold is once you've got it set up and by the time you're able to get a sufficiently large stronghold, you probably have at least one arcane caster NPC that you have established a relationship with and you could hire them to come in and do the castings of teleportation circle because if you cast teleportation circle in the same place every day for a year it becomes permanent and then you have a way to instantly get back to your stronghold anytime you need to because you can just cast teleportation circle or teleport and instantly target that location and all of you and your friends and everything you're carrying just instantly bamps to your teleportation circle. That's a really, really clever idea. Another good example of having like a base of operation or stronghold, Pillars of Eternity had a really good example of building up a stronghold where you start having merchants come in, tradesmen come in that you can reference and they would obviously give you a discount or a deal. And then later on, you could actually hire out for a cost as well. So again, these gives you a lot of options. So if you ever get a chance to check out Pillars of Eternity, that was an amazingly well-crafted game. And they actually covered the stronghold operation really, really well. You also get that in Fallout 4 with your settlement building. I know that there were a lot of people who didn't really like that aspect of the game. I have a whole lot of fun with it personally. Um, Fallout 4 is terrible. We won't talk about it any further. You hush. I liked Fallout 4. It wasn't as good as New Vegas, but I liked Fallout 4. As an aside, I knew I was going to have an issue with Fallout 4 from the very intro when the guy selling the vault space was talking about the threat of super mutants, which if you played Fallout 1 or 2, no, didn't happen until the forced evolution virus after the bombs went off. I don't recall there being any comments on the 
super mutants. Yeah, he talks about the mutants and super mutants. It's in the very, very beginning. I know where you're talking about. It must be some dialogue option that I've never actually taken because in the main line, I don't think that he actually does. He talks about total atomic annihilation. I don't remember him saying anything about super mutants. I'll see if I can find a clip for you later. I mean, I believe you if you say that it's there, but I'm just saying that I've never seen that. Anyway. So that fairly covers your quote, quote, getting something. And again, that's your basic stuff. I think the next broad category you had was doing something, which is that's pretty much everything you're going to be doing in your downtime. That's why you do stuff in your downtime. Right. Doing something is basically everything where you're not doing it specifically to have a material gain at the end of it. You can end up getting material gains from any part of the doing something depending on what you're doing but that's not the goal of the doing something category xanathar's guide has a wonderful section on downtime activities starts on page 126 and there are a whole bunch of these sorts of things that are set up and talking about what sort of reward that you can get for doing it what sort of complications you can have if something goes wrong while you're doing it. So I'm just going to go through and talk on each one of these just a little bit. So the first real doing something downtime activity that they have is carousing. Carousing and relaxing, I sort of conflated the two because it's largely the same thing depending on your character's personality because a lot of characters will carouse to relax. Carousing is going out and mingling with people, doing all of the things that we can't do right now because there's a pandemic on. The most common way you're going to see this would be like, if you walk up into the end and you start talking or listening for information that's kind of your carousing on a very low level versus, you know, if you're carousing more intently, then you might be looking for a group of people or might be trying to specifically find contacts and, okay, I'm going to go and see who I can talk to. I'm going to sit next to XYZ person at a table or I'm going to keep my ears open for conversation. That's a very simplicated form of carousing versus like, I know there's going to be a mage con being going on, so I'm going to try to figure out if I can find new spells or hints of magic items at this mage con being. So that's another form of carousing. So there's different ways you would do that. And carousing can have different costs. Like if you get into town and again, your gear's all beat up and you're going to be going to a ball, then obviously you're going to have to find a way to clean yourself up, find some suitable clothing, gear, find who to talk to, figure out how to get an invitation. So, I mean, these all are different aspects. Or you can just say, yeah, you go and you talk to whoever. So, again, as much or as little detail as you as the DM want to put into this, you can. So, crossing involves going out and getting a meal. It involves going out and getting drinks, buying a round for the bar. Those sorts of things fall under carousing. And if you chose to use the lifestyle ranking rules that are in the player's handbook, your lifestyle will determine how much it costs you to go carousing. Xanthar's Guide does have some really good guidelines for that. So carousing specifically covers one week of activity. Everything in Xanathar's Guide covers one work week of activity. So that would be five eight-hour days for the work week portion of it. So carousing involves all of the meals that you eat, all of the beverages you drink, any sort of socializing that you do, just the random interactions that you get into. 
And another thing that I see that you can find even in the Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master Guide is they actually cover your day-to-day cost of living depending on how well you want to live. If you just want to live simply or comfortably or nobly or extravagantly or you want to live the rock star life, they actually have a cost of, you know, one gold piece or five gold pieces, whatever it is, per day that, you know, just having a roof over your head and meals gives you an idea of what that's going to cost you. That's been skipped. And I think the only time I've ever even seen that given a brief mention was I played a little bit in an adventure league scenario and we brushed up on that for just a little bit. But that leads us into things like you can on your downtime work if you want to just try to make some extra money for your character, if you possibly want to improve a skill, if you're working on your crafting items and you actually do work at a blacksmith or you know wherever you're working, you can actually use that to cut down the time required for your crafting if you wanted to craft an item. You're jumping ahead, but yes, those are all things that... Oh, I got excited. Yeah, I know you got excited. And according to Xanathar's, when it comes to your carousing, if you end up having complications, because you roll persuasion check, and depending on what your result is, you can make new allies, you can make new enemies, and you can end up with some complications and they actually break it down based on whether it's low class, middle class, upper class. So depending on your lifestyle, you'll end up with a different table worth of complications. You have things like you get your pocket picked. You promise to do something while you're drunk, then you find out about it whenever you sober up. You wake up in the morning and you're married. Things like this. I didn't land in Vegas. What are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, these tables are really cool. You spent an extra 500 gold trying to impress people, so you had such a big night, and it's kind of like, what was that movie, The Hangover? Rolling on that carousing complication table really heavily. That's that quest line in Skyrim, the Sanguine Daedric Prince quest, where you sit down for a drinking contest and you wake up naked in the Temple of Dibella. My personal favorite is on the lower class complications. It says, everyone is calling you by some weird, embarrassing nickname like Puddle Drinker or Bench Slayer, and no one will say why. That's awesome. I think that's my favorite out of all of them. Yeah, that one's way up there. I think one of my favorite kind of the carousing thing, off-time relaxation, which we'll talk about a bit, from a campaign I played a long time ago was the party went to an inn. We were flush with gold from our adventure we just looted a bunch of treasure and so one of the characters you know wanted the best room in the end they said well do you want the end special so the guy's like sure having no clue what it was so he's sitting there and he's relaxing and like an hour later in the downtime for the game the dm's like you hear a knock on the door saying you know the room special's here so he's all excited trying to figure out what it was and it was literally a chocolate covered gnome (laughs) <laughs> so it was just like a, a gnome dancer just covered in chocolate. Hey, I'm here type thing. And that became a long time running joke. And I'll still reference the chocolate covered gnome fairly frequently just because it's hilarious and kind of completely oddball. What are you getting? It's a chocolate covered gnome. I've heard you reference that a couple of times before. I didn't know the story. Yeah. So that was the quote hotel special. So the next thing listed in Xanathar's would be crime. So you can go and mug somebody or pick somebody's pocket. Or you could counterfeit something or do any of a number of other illegal activities that could make you coin. It's only illegal if you get caught. And if you get caught or if there's a complication, there's a table again. I should probably just stop referencing that because there's a complication table for everything. So you can make an investigation check, a perception check, a deception check, or a thieves tools check at one of a set number of benchmarks. And depending on your result determines how much money you're able to get from it and whether or not you end up getting complications from it. 
if you have the party full of bards or rogues or even just more than one this is a good time where like last week we talked about the skill checks this is a good time to throw some of those in there this isn't quite going to be a skill challenge necessarily it could be if you are as a group working a crowd say you have your bard up performing and everyone's paying attention to them and they're putting on their performance and then the rogue is going through working the crowd picking pockets that is something that you could do as a skill challenge multiple checks over the course of the night and see if eventually the thief ends up getting noticed whether or not they get caught or if they manage to escape if the npcs put two and two together and figure out that the rogue and the bard are working together on this and now the bard has to escape too the early parts of uh, road to el dorado it feels like that sort of thing where they get caught cheating at dice at the beginning. Honestly, though, I mean, you could have a skill challenge if they're breaking in the house just to make sure that they don't bump into something or set off an alarm or hit a trap that's triggered to make noise to alert people. You really could set up these skill challenges in several different ways. And downtime criminal enterprise, wink, wink, is a uh, really good way to do that. You did skip recuperation. You probably want to cover that. Yeah, so going to jump back to the carousing, relaxing for a minute. In the player's handbook, it gives you rules for recuperating from serious injuries. So any effects that would prevent you from recovering hit points, there's not many of them in 5e, but there are some. Or it gives you a chance to have advantage on a saving throw against disease or poison. So if you come down with some horrific disease, you can literally just go to bed and rest up and sleep it off. It takes three days of not doing anything other than resting or I think you can do light activity for a little bit of that time, but most of it has to be resting. And after those three days, you get to make a DC 15 con save. If you succeed, you end whatever the effect is that's keeping you from recovering hit points or you gain advantage on the saving throw to recover from disease or poison. So that's pretty much it. That gives you a mechanical incentive for the role play of, I'm sick, so I'm going to bed. So yeah, now we get to gambling. Gambling is a wonderful way to put mini games in your game. I know James loves doing mini games. You can do any number of dice games or card games or what have you to try and fill this time, and it does help break up the monotony of D&D because it does eventually get into a very repetitive sort of feel after a while and it helps to be able to break up the monotony a little bit now one thing that i didn't get to mention and because it was a non-combat scenario that we were talking about last week that i really do like the gambling thing really comes in really well and you can either have the party do this amongst themselves and have people bet who's going to win or you can bring up some npcs but one of the dms of a game i played forever ago had a game called drink smash which I absolutely stole unabashedly because it's actually a really fun thing to do and people really like it. But the rules are fairly simple. It's unarmed combat. It's one-on-one. At the beginning of each round, each player makes an unarmed strike against the opponent. And then they have to drink. Generally, it's a pint of ale or dwarven spirit, depending what it is. 5e doesn't have the intoxication table like 3.5. So what I started doing was I made a DC 12 to start in every drink. The DC would go up one. After three failures of con save, you either passed out drunk 
or if your hit points got to zero from the fighting, then you got knocked out. Last player standing wins. So it's kind of a drink and fight type thing. With It generally goes really well. People tend to really enjoy it. You could bet amongst each other, or if you have two people, the party can put so much money on the barbarian or the fighter or whatever, you know, and they can actually bet amongst themselves on the fighter or fight themselves. And again, we covered there's all kinds of dice games. You could do Yahtzee, you could do a poker game like which was in the uh, first two Witcher games. If you have any kind of dice games that you played in your youth or in your college dorms or anything like that, or you could just Google dice games, dice drinking games. These all tie in really easily, really well. And you have the added bonus of you have different size dice. You don't have to play it all with D6s, so you can really broaden what it is that you're doing. But going off of your game that you were talking about, Drink Smash, that is a wonderful segue into the next thing on the list, which is pit fighting. We heard you like fighting, so we put some fighting in your downtime so you can fight while you downtime. So this is for those martial types, typically, that really just show up to smash things. And so even whenever they're not out smashing things, they need something to smash. It keeps the barbarian out of trouble, really, it does. Or gets the barbarian into trouble. Depending if he's cheating or not. So yeah, pit fighting and gambling tend to go together. You can have gambling without pit fighting, but you're not really going to have pit fighting without gambling. There is going to be money changing hands somewhere at a pit fight. More often than not. And again, they tie in kind of with your carousing, but these are all the raucous things that you're going to be doing. So if you can think that you're going to be doing it on a big Vegas weekend, you can pretty much do it on your downtime. So I did mention this is typically going to be your fighter, barbarian, monk, smashy, fighty, martial sort of thing. I think that having organized wizard duel pit fights sounds like an amazing thing that we need to have happen. Absolutely. That kind of ties in a little bit with something we talked last week with the wizard's chest, but just having a full spell sling and summon fireball and have a splash zone for the audience, you know, where they maybe have an asbestos cape they can go so they don't get singed. That sounds amazing. No, I think what it is, is there is a wall of force dome over the arena. Okay, I can buy into this. It's a wizard pit fight. They're going to have that sort of measure in place and so they have a permanent hemisphere wall of force so it's transparent you can see through it but it's going to stop all of the spell effects from ricocheting out that would be really fun another thing you could do with this which would be actually kind of neat for your druids and your rangers would be to have kind of like a bullfight or a rodeo so you could use your animal handling checks your animal friendship to you know see if you could capture an animal or or stop it from charging a thing or have like the rodeo clowns where even if you're rogues just to use your evasion skills or whatnot right yeah that could be something that could be an interesting twist on the pit fighting as well so i think we need to just do a different episodes on mini games within the game i don't know as if we have enough for a whole episode on that but we can work on it we can work on it but i mean again if we talk with the, like the drink smash the gambling the pit fighting the different forms of pit fighting i mean there really is a lot of options that could come up with that like i said that could be something to tinker with that could be a lot of fun all right and so the next thing on the list is religious services. Religious services are a wonderful thing for especially divine casters. So your clerics and your paladins, they're going to get a lot of mileage from uh, religious services. A little bit less so with paladins in 5th edition because paladins are no longer tied to a deity. They're tied to an oath. So a paladin could be serving an oath that 
doesn't necessarily tie to a god. A good example would be the Oath of Ancients. You could have an Oath of Ancients be tied to an Archfey. You can have it be tied to a very powerful elemental. Not necessarily a god. But clerics are tied to deities. And so it makes a whole lot of sense to have religious services that your cleric either has to attend or they have to hold, whether it's just a simple meditation ceremony, standing in front of an altar, lighting candles and incense, saying their prayers, doing all of this general devotion, or actually holding a service that NPCs attend, and then you can pass the hat and take up a collection. Because he becomes a traveling preacher at that point, and you can bet that revival preachers pass around the hat for collections. Also, this is a good way to generate goodwill within the town, maybe find some other contacts. And religious service also is a good time for a warlock to pay their dues to their patron, as it were. So if their patron has a certain philosophy or certain things they want done, this more often than not would probably be a good time to go ahead and pay for some of those favors. Right. And while I say religious services, this doesn't necessarily have to be services to a deity, as I was suggesting with the paladin. So yeah, warlocks communing with their patron, that would be a wonderful religious service sort of deal. Divine soul sorcerers, giving them a celestial being that they can speak with to understand this divine connection that they have for their magic. Monks having meditation and sort of secular services almost for centering their mind and reflecting on their actions since the last time that they had a good meditation in a temple with their compatriots. Druids going to a druid grove and communing with nature, talking with arch druids, you know, learning the craft from other druids. Those are a really good thing to do. You can also tie into that with rangers a little bit if you want to have a ranger that has more of a connection with the nature spirits as opposed to just being a fighter who happens to be out in the woods. And one that I almost overlooked, Path of the Zealot Barbarians. Because they do have that divine connection. They're kind of barbarian paladins. So they have that divine connection that's a little more strained than you get with a paladin. But it's definitely there. I'm intrigued. Path of the Zealot is actually a really cool barbarian path. I believe it's the path that Yasha in uh, the second season of Critical Role is pursuing. I think she's a Path of the Zealot. Going back to talking even about your clerics with your religious services, they don't necessarily have to be, you know, going and preaching or doing whatever. But even just being out amongst the people, like if you've got create food and water, maybe you're feeding the poor, maybe you're running like a soup kitchen or something like that. Maybe you're out there building houses like an aged Jimmy Carter, you know, that kind of thing. So anything that generally helps the community, but you're doing it to bring reverence or whatever to your deity or anything like that, all of those tie in. So your religious services do not necessarily have to be you in a temple or a chapel or whatever. Yeah, they could definitely be just charity work. A cleric with the mending cantrip can do a whole lot of charity work. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then that's a great way to get a lot of following if you're mending like wagons and pots and things like that. Because you have to think, depending on the setting of your game, but that could be make or break for a lot of people. And depending on 
how skilled a blacksmith or whatever, you know, trade workers there or what they want to charge or, yeah, I mean, depending on how you want to role play that, that could be, wow. I mean, there's a lot of potential there. A forge cleric peddler, you know, the old European peddler with the big pack with all of the stuff hanging off of it and he walks from town to town and he fixes their pots and he sharpens their scissors and he does all of that thing. A forge cleric peddler. That would be kind of awesome. I want to play this character now. And not just because it's a cleric. He's definitely going to be a gnome. But not chocolate covered? No. We're not covering this gnome in chocolate. I might even just make him allergic to chocolate just so you can't cover him in chocolate. Aw. Fine powdered sugar. Maybe even like a half-orc peddler. I could see that. Something where just the initial visage, the initial appearance of him would make people hesitant until that one person went and used his services, and he got that good review, and so the business slowly trickles in, and he single-handedly changes an entire town's opinion of orcs. I like it. So yeah, those are all religious service sort of things that you can get into, just some ideas. The next thing on the list is one that you can also get a whole lot of mileage out of, which is research. Finding information for whatever quest that you're on, trying to locate an object, trying to see if an object even exists, trying to find a location, trying to find dirt on an NPC that you've been tracking down, trying to find new spells to learn if you're a wizard, if you're planning on doing a mission within the city in the next few days, going out and doing reconnaissance to try and figure out a way in, a way out, try and get some actual mechanical advantages to your infiltration or your heist. Right. These are some really good roleplay options. Again, like Ian was talking about planning an escape route or planning a route into a heist. Your research, if you want to delve into a library, and that can lead to all kinds of different stuff. This also ties in your research and your carousing can kind of be done at the same time. Frequently are. Yeah, they can be. Especially if you're going with a charisma-based research So your persuasion checks and your social interaction and talking to people as opposed to an intelligence-based research. So your investigation checks going into the library and looking for books and looking for information. Moral of the story, research is not just for wizards. It isn't. You do get a whole lot of mileage from a high charisma character just being able to go and talk to people. But you can also, if you really wanted to, take the middle ground and go with a wisdom approach using your perception and actually watching people, watching interactions with people, following people around using your survival skill to track people. You can get away with learning a lot of information that way, you know, just sort of following people around, seeing who they interact with, seeing what they do, seeing where they go. You're eavesdropping. I'm sorry. Yeah. Eavesdropping, tailing, or even just flat out spying on people. You know, it's a stakeout. So bring the donuts. Bring the donuts and a thermos of coffee. And one gnome. And one what? One gnome. Damn it, James. <laughs> you're, you're going to make the name of this episode one chocolate-covered gnome, aren't you? You're the one who names the episodes. Yeah, but I can already tell you're going to push for that. Just a little bit of peril. <laughs> Just a little bit of peril, yeah. Anyway, getting back on topic. So oh. another option that you can do in the downtime is training so if you want to improve your character if you try to want to pick up a new proficiency or possibly for some reason you want to learn a language maybe you've picked up a book you through your research but it's written in draconic and nobody in the party speaks draconic someone's gonna have to figure it out 
Right. That would be a good thing to do. You can also use this as an RP way to level up. So this is you learning the new skills that you would get when you level up. The fighter getting better at fighting so that they get their extra attacks. Things like that. Things like, keep going back to the fighter, but a battle master fighter learning their new maneuvers. You mentioned Critical Role a lot, and this is one thing in the second season they did really well with Bo. So she did a lot of training in between her levels, but I thought that was a really good way to introduce that and how she picked up her new skills or her, you know, her level attributes as she got them is she had to go in and talk to a trainer and get monk training in between her levels a great role play way to do that so it's not just hey you woke up and you knew this all of a sudden because that's not how that works that is not how that works most of the time sometimes you get that flash of insight while you're dreaming but that is very rare but that actually does play back into the older editions where it was gold for xp so your experience gain was based on the amount of gold that you were able to loot. And so you literally bought your levels with the gold that you looted. And that's why gold was at such a premium in the earlier editions, why you would want to find these big treasure hoards, because that gold that you're looting is your experience points, and that's how you gain levels. And as we referenced earlier, a lot of your crafting or things like that also cost XP. So if you didn't want to completely drain whatever progress you made towards your level, you definitely wanted that gold to be able to exchange for those experience points. And there was a campaign concept that I had a while back that I have been tinkering with where you would actually bring that gold for XP sort of feel into D&D 5e to where once you hit a certain amount of experience points, you didn't automatically gain a level. But instead, you had to go and find a trainer, and you had to pay that trainer a certain amount of gold to train you to gain your level. And so, as you're getting to higher and higher levels, it ends up becoming part of the quest, because you wouldn't be able to use the same trainer multiple times to gain multiple levels. You have to find a new trainer every single time, meaning that once you get to the higher levels, you're going to have a harder time finding a trainer who has the requisite skills to actually train you to gain another level. I like that, and that feels very similar to how training worked in Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion, which was a wonderful game and does not get near enough credit. But that's how that worked in Oblivion, and I think you could train with a trainer, I think, once or twice. But those trainers only cap you up to a certain level, and then you had to find someone more experienced even after that. Well, that goes through all of the Elder Scrolls games, really. I mean, because you got that same sort of thing in Morrowind, too. And I actually like it a little bit better in Skyrim as opposed to what they had in Morrowind and Oblivion because you can only buy training five times per level. So you couldn't just find the master trainer once you had a huge pile of gold and sit down and buy nine levels. Because I totally did that in Oblivion. Oh my god, hacks. Actually, I think I also did that in Morrowind. I went and found the athletics trainer, I think it was. It was one of the Ashlanders, the master athletics trainer, and just sat down and bought my way up to 100 athletics and gained like 8 or 9 levels off of it. There's no royal road to the Cirque du Soleil. But yeah, that's the sort of thing that you can do. The training downtime activity also gives you an RP way to multi-class. Because you'd be coming in as one class and then you're finding a mentor that is willing to teach you for starters and then after you find someone willing to teach you it is 
the act of them teaching you to gain that first level in whatever second class that you're going for. Unless you're touched by a deity of some sort, that training is a very good RP way to bridge that gap. I mean, even if you're touched by a deity, I would still say that you would want something like this because then your goal is to seek out a chapel or a church devoted to that deity and find a cleric there to teach you what it is that you're getting because just getting the raw ability doesn't necessarily mean that you're able to harness it. So yeah, a really good example of that is even if you're touched by a deity, if you want to take the story of Saul, you know, turning to Paul. So he was kind of a, I guess you'd call him a fighter at that point, and they was blinded on the road to Damascus for three days. And they took him to Judas to kind of hold him. He kind of took care of him and mentored him while he had that conversion to Paul. That's kind of where Saul multiclassed and declared as the story goes. Again, that's that example. Even someone who was literally touched by an ED would still need a trainer or not so much a trainer, but a guide to kind of start you on that path. Or you can refer to nearly any chosen one archetype fantasy story. So you need an Obi-Wan? Yeah, everyone needs an Obi-Wan in order to figure out what they got. Except for Qui-Gon. Qui-Gon didn't really need Obi-Wan. Well, Obi-Wan needed Qui-Gon. I believe we covered working a bit. Yes, I did jump the gun. I got all excited. Was there anything more in depth on that you wanted to cover? I mean, not particularly, but working is a great way to use your tool proficiencies to make money. So I would almost say that a bard using their proficiency with their bard's instrument and the perform check would be considered working. This is them going out and using their skills to make money. So this This is where we summon James and his tin flute. This is where we summon James and his penny whistle. This is where... If you have a sailor background, you go out and work on a fishing boat for a week. This is where if you have proficiency with smith's tools, you go and work for a blacksmith for a week. If you proficient with jeweler's tools, you go and work for a gem cutter for a week. These sorts of things. And they're also a good RP way, especially whenever you're using something like our magic item creation rules. They are a good RP way to explain how their proficiency bonus going up by one actually improves their skills because they're going and they're working with a master craftsman to learn these new skills that they're able to apply to their own work. So downtime is a good way to rest. It's a good way to make money. It's a great way to role play. It's an awesome way just to game and have fun. Really, there's so much you can do with this that you really don't want to skip over it in your campaigns. It's really a travesty that these aren't examined more in depth than they are. All right. I think that's just about everything that we got. Oh, I did want to mention, going back to Xanthar's Guide, starting on page 78 actually has a whole list of the different artisan's tools and the sorts of things that you can do with them. And that plays into the working aspect a whole lot because it lets you know what sort of things you can actually do with your tools to make money. And it also tells you what sort of benefits to certain skill checks that you can get for having proficiency with your tools. For an example, with the alchemist supplies, you get additional information on arcana checks for identifying potions and what potions do. You get bonuses to investigation checks to figure out what sort of chemical substances are used in certain areas, identifying plants. But it also lets you craft potions. So that is a great way to make money using your alchemy tools to make potions. 
And they reference a couple other things that I didn't realize were there. Like you can use it to make a puff of smoke, which depending on how you want a role player use, that could be greatly used as a diversion or depending on the size of the puff of smoke, you know, possibly to obscure and hide yourself, depending on what you as a DM or what your table DM wants to allow. But these tools actually give you more than just a surface use, which is actually kind of neat. So there is a character concept that I've been wanting to do for a while is a mute bard who does quick draw art. So it's like I can't for the life of me remember the guy's name shows up in the last part of The Dark Tower by Stephen King. And he has the ability to where what he draws becomes real. That's cool. You say that quick draw art and I can't remember the guy's name, but he generally paints on a black background. It's like finger painting and he does something that he flips it upside down and it's an image. Yeah, those sorts of things. Um, So he would have a sketch pad or like a magical paintbrush that he uses as his bardic focus that he's able to like paint in the air and make his spell effects come off of that. But I can see someone like that going out and working. Their performance would be doing street magic, you know, just doing street illusion magic and doing some quick draw stuff. And gaining proficiency with alchemy tools specifically so that he can do little practical effects on top of it. So he's able to combine a practical effect to use that as a diversion to what magical effect he's actually doing at the same time. That's awesome. I like that. And really, that's something we need to explore in the future is the performance check. It's so much more than just a song or a dance. It really is. All right. Well, I think that just about wraps everything up for today. Unless there's something else that you want to cover. No, I think we've pretty much covered this. Like I said, it's really, there's a lot to explore with downtime. You can do a lot with it. It gives a lot of different options for your players, particularly if they start feeling a little bored or like you're in a rut and your sessions are becoming very monotonous or the same, which is a rut we all can fall into depending on how frequently you meet. So it's definitely a way to shift and break things up. And it gives you a way, if you have a party member who wants a specific magic item and really wants it bad, this gives you a way to make them work for it and not just drop it into a treasure trove. And they're like, oh, look, this thing that you've been asking me for for four weeks just happens to magically be in this dragon's treasure trove. Oh my, how did that get there? So this gives you a way to let your players have a little bit more influence on what they get and how they get it. And so it gives the players a little bit more agency. And it also takes a good bit of work off of you as a DM because you don't have to throw those sorts of things into your game and you don't have to figure out where to put it to make sure that the party actually goes and gets it. Those sorts of things. So uh, thank you for sticking with us as we rambled on about downtime activities. The last couple episodes have been a little bit rambly, and I apologize for that, but I think we're going to be getting into something a little more concrete next week. I'm kind of wanting to dip in and uh, pull a couple of my personal homebrew classes out, one or two of those, just to see what we've got time-wise and talking about them. I'm still trying to decide what to bring out. I think I might do that for next week so we have something a little more concrete to talk about and a little bit more specific to actually do a write-up on and send out. If you have any comments or suggestions or ideas that you want to let us know about, 
Go ahead and send us an email, undercommontaste at gmail.com. Go ahead and follow us over on Twitter, at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing daily RP prompts based off of my Shakespearean insults page-a-day calendar. Those have been a lot of fun to follow. I've been having a whole lot of fun with it. It's been good for getting my creative chops going because I haven't been able to run any games because of the pandemic and all. So it gives me a creative outlet. I'd really love to see what sort of creative outlet it serves for you. So if you come up with any stories or any RP scenario ideas or anything like that coming off of these prompts, we'd love to hear about it. So go ahead and drop that into an email to us at undercommentaste at gmail.com or send it to us as a direct message through Twitter. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Under Common Taste. Again, follow, like, subscribe, and comment and rate us on our podcasts. You can be found on Podbean, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you find your podcasts. Thank you for joining us for the Under Common Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at UndercommonTaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.